Jeremy Hardy's Speaks to the Nation, a series of lectures in which round-the-world yachtswoman and priest Jeremy Hardy gives a live audience the chance to sit still and hold their water for 30 minutes. In this program, Mr. Hardy explains how to work. Good evening. In tonight's program, I shall not only be talking about work, I shall actually be providing work for my two loyal and sexually harassed assistants, Debbie Isaac and Gordon Kennedy. Hello. Hello. Now, Gordon, would you describe your feelings at having been provided by me with an evening's work as one of extreme gratitude, or do you regard the work as simply yours as of right? Well, neither really, Jeremy. You see, we're all, in fact, self-employed people working out a contract to provide a service and with our earnings coming indirectly from the licence pair. It's not a relationship in which you are entrepreneur and we are workers, but rather that we're all petit bourgeois. <laughs> and to think I found you working as a waitress in a cocktail bar. <laughs> now, Debbie, you're not only an actor but a director and writer. Do you not feel that the fact that you are ludicrously overqualified for this job means that you are doing some ambitious Oxbridge ingenue out of the first step in what would have been a cakewalk into TV, West End theatre and movies? Well, let's hope so. <laughs> but, Jeremy, you've got your own radio series, yeah? Yeah. Well, does that mean you're entitled to an Oxbridge degree, or does it only work the other way around? <laughs> I'm not sure, but it'd be nice. Not many people in midlife have time to study for a degree, so let's hope Lord Archer is using his opportunity to get one after all. <laughs> Only his jail were in Oxford. Although some people say that prison is a college of crime, which makes him overqualified already. <laughs> anyway, enough of this idle chatter, and on with the programme. As I've suggested, if we treat the programme as an economic model, I could say I have created two jobs. This is something we say when a company builds a new factory, that they have created jobs. However, when they close down and ship out two years later, taking a massive government subsidy with them, they have not destroyed the jobs. The jobs have merely been lost, mislaid somehow as the company was packing. <laughs> this way of looking at the world sees the world through the eyes of the employer. It means you think wealth is created not by the person who does the work, but by the person who hires them. We say Henry Ford made cars. Brunel built bridges. We say Geoffrey Archer is an absolute tosser. When in fact... <laughs> In fact, he's always got someone in to do it for him. <laughs> That's what a person does when they are money rich and time poor. And Geoffrey Archer could never have enough time as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> but I digress. My point is that those who extract work from others are praised as though they had done it themselves. I wonder if slave owners moaned about executive stress and praised themselves for creating hundreds of positions, the positions being very close together, chained up on ships. <laughs> what slavery shows us is that employers will try to get away with paying as little as possible, nothing being the optimum. It's interesting that European racist stereotypes about Africans were invented to justify slavery only when abolitionists became active in opposing it. The Romans had used slaves, but had an equal opportunities policy. They captured people of any race, colour, gender or sexual orientation whenever they won a battle. It was a case of you lost, so now you have to work in a gap toga factory. <laughs> it was only when the morality of owning people was questioned that a pseudo-scientific justification was cobbled together. I'm surprised that there are not scientists today telling us that the Geordie and the Glaswegian have call centre genes giving them an innate ability to have no home life and not need the toilet during working hours. <laughs> Call centres are the dark, satanic mills of the future. The work is long, uncomfortable, tedious and degrading. Hello? Just a second. It's for you, Jeremy. Hello? 
Hello, Mr. Hardy. This is Angus from BT calling. We're just putting in a cursory call because you happen to be in the Glasgow area at the moment and we wondered whether you'll be needing any more friends and family at all. No, I'm fine. I've got quite a large family. <laughs> Would you not like an auntie? We've got an offer of an old dear in Kirkubri. She's very sweet. You wouldn't have to remember her birthday. If you could just give her a ring once a week for an hour or so at peak rate just to check up she's okay and just keep her talking. <laughs> Can I think about it? Well, I'll need to sign you up now or she's going to die. Okay, fine. <laughs> okay, I've arranged that for you. You do understand that's Kirkubri, Illinois. Yes, fine. Bye. I spend a great deal of time fielding calls from BT. Because I'm actually one of their customers, I grudgingly accept this as part of the service I offer them. Perhaps if I were more proactive, I'd phone them to tell them how they could save me money. I could call during unsocial hours because call centres are open around the clock. I know this because earlier this year I had to fill in a passport application for my daughter, which meant I needed online support. Despite this being at a time when a humane employer would be shutting up shop, a succession of people with Belfast accents took calls from me about every section of the form. Finally, it occurred to me that I was in all probability calling Belfast. <laughs> I wondered at the thinking behind citing an office dealing with nationality questions in another country. But I'm sure the work is welcome. Belfast has high unemployment, especially among Catholics, and call centre work can suit working mothers. They can do the night shift and be home in time to shield their kids from blast bombs on the way to school. <laughs> I digress. Because I have never found a call centre unstaffed, a policy that might usefully be taken up by an emergency service such as the police, I reckon I could fairly call BT at 11pm on a school night and tell them the news about my special offers. BT, Angus speaking. Hello, Angus. I'm just ringing to tell you about some of my cost-saving ideas. For example, did you know I could save money on my phone bill by not paying it? Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry, can you call me back? Hey, what? Hello? Hello, this is Angus from BT. Oh, hi, Angus. Sorry about that. I was just saving myself some money. Now, <laughs> let me tell you how you can save money. Don't respond to cold calls about digital TV, because it's crap. And don't get call waiting, because it only serves to offend people. All right, I better go. Call me. Call waiting is an appalling idea. How crushing it is to hear the words... The person you're calling knows you are waiting. Please hold the line. Followed shortly afterwards by... The person you are calling is unavailable. Please try later. I would suggest a more direct letdown, such as... The person you are calling knows you are waiting, but doesn't care. <laughs> He's busy. Can't you understand that? Please do not call again unless you wish to become the subject of a restraining order. <laughs> now that I'm fired up, I know how to approach all the people who ring to save me money without being rude to them. Before they even ask me if I've got home contents insurance, I'll interject. Do you know how you can save money and your home life by joining a union and demanding proper pay and working hours? <laughs> or maybe I'll say, look, the only reason you know my name is the bloody supermarket sold you my phone number because I have a reward card, and if the supermarket really wanted to save people money, they could stop arsing around with plastic cards and reduce prices, or turn a blind eye when old people nick cat food. <laughs> and instead of ringing me to tell me my insurance company is charging me too much, why don't you ring them? They might listen to you. You're in the same line of business. <laughs> Basically, I don't have time for this. I've got washing to do and 41 channels I can't even get through of an evening. I do my bargain hunting in charity shops and the thought of shopping around for good value insurance policies depresses me so much I'd rather be dead. <laughs> Nothing personal, love. I'm not having a go at you. Hello? 
Oh, uh, Jeremy, it's for you. Oh, God. Hello? Hello, Mr. Hardy. This is Teresa from Loan Sharks UK. We're wondering if you'd like to consolidate all your debts into one easily endurable monthly beating. Um... <laughs> Could you, could you call me back? Would that be our pleasant salesperson ring-back service or anonymous menacing midnight payphone service? Uh, I don't owe you anything yet. I'll put you down for menacing then. Thank you for answering, Mr Hardy. You have been charged for this call. Goodbye. I could say that people ringing me from call centres is the reason I never get anything done. But the fact is I am ill-placed to lecture about work because I've never had a job in my life. The closest was one week as a car park attendant at the Farnborough International Air Show. That experience taught me one valuable lesson. It's not an air show at all, it's an arms fair, with a Red Arrows display team and an old Lancaster bomber providing cover. <laughs> the enthusiasts pulling up in bulletproof Rolls Royces are not armed with questions like, so what was the difference in wingspan between the Sopwith Camel and the Sopwith Pup? But rather, how many people can I kill with one of those? I shouldn't complain because business is business. For example, as a mark of respect for those killed in the World Trade Center, the arms fair in Docklands carried on all that day without pause. <laughs> and Farnborough International provided me with the only proper work I've ever done. If I'm pressed for a job description, I say writer and broadcaster, because it sounds grown up. <laughs> Humorist sounds like a very slightly amusing person whose reminiscences of things they've only just done fill up the pages of free magazines on planes. And writer and performer sounds like one of those out-of-work actors who survive on an Arts Council grant doing a one-man show about the letters of Keats. <laughs> when I say comedian, I receive tremendous praise. People say, God, that must take some guts. I couldn't do it. Then I ask them what they do, and it's clearing landmines. <laughs> now, Debbie, as well as being an actor, you're also a writer and director of plays and films. And yet, you're very much a woman. What would you say is the most difficult part of your career? Well, as a busy working mum, I need a conditioner I can rely on and a pelvic floor exercise that gives me the control I need not to wet myself when I run up the stairs. <laughs> ah, the ladies and their cunning feminine wiles. <laughs> Gordon, you run a successful production company and yet still manage to stay fresh, dry and dandruff-free for the woman in your life. As a working father, do you still have time for your children? Well, I try to make sure I put them to bed at least once a week. What happens on the other nights? Well, they get really tired. <laughs> Debbie and Gordon, many thanks. There was a time when it was predicted that by now we'd all be working less and have much more leisure time. We used to say, isn't it funny how we ask each other what we do and only mean what work we do? The reason for that becomes obvious if you've ever asked anyone about their hobbies, which is one of the few ways of getting a more boring answer than by asking them about their job. At least when people talk about their work, they're likely to moan, to downplay its validity and apologise for boring you. When they talk about their leisure activities, they try to enlist you in their obsessive compulsive disorder. <laughs> so, uh, how many humming tops have you got? 749. <laughs> Blimey, how'd you get around to playing with all them? They're not toys. In ancient Ecuador, they were used as weapons of war. Take a look at this, baby. Oh, yeah. Look, Caroline's got her holiday snaps out. Hi, Caroline. They look interesting. Yes, it was the best creative whittling summer school we've ever done. <laughs> this is the compound where we ate and slept and spent the day. The sea was crystal clear, but you couldn't really see it over the wall. But the compound was wonderful. It's got on-site security, so we were all completely safe from ourselves. Like what with the knives, I suppose? Oh, dear. You're somewhere behind contemporary whittling thinking. Western whittling uses knives. We use positive energy. 
Well, how'd you get a point on the stick? There is no point. In a way, that's the point. <laughs> uh, oh, look! Stuart's demonstrating another spinning top. And this little beauty's the daddy of them all. The Paraguayan death top. <laughs> oh, good, the slides are starting. And people complain when I talk about my bowel movements, but feel perfectly entitled to subject the world to details of their exercise regime. Look, exercise is as normal, natural and healthy as masturbation, but I don't want to hear about it and I don't want to see you do it in the park. <laughs> people talk about how many sit-ups they do, but they can't just say, I do a hundred. They have to say, I do a hundred reps. Reps meaning repetitions. Surely if you do more than one of something, repetition is implicit. <laughs> Why go to the trouble of inventing an abbreviation for a word you didn't need to use? <laughs> Why torture yourself and those around you by pointing out that by doing something more than once, you're repeating it repeatedly? People explaining their job don't say, well, I go to work on a Monday and over the course of a week I do five reps of that. <laughs> The worst thing about this observation is that a time will probably come in my life when I shall spin out the possible uses of reps into enough reps of the one idea to fill a whole aeroplane magazine article. <laughs> so let's move on. Personally, I'm reluctant to tell people what I do for a living. Part of the reluctance is a result of the fact that my work involves public exposure, so when someone asks what I do, I have implicitly failed. <laughs> terrible to be Davina McCall and for someone to ask what you do. How can you say I'm a celebrity after that? <laughs> I'm not here. It's a fax. Oh, who's it from? It's from Jenny Tremaine Associates. They're a talent agency. It says, Dear reward card holder, our computer has selected you as someone who in all probability has no regard for the talent of Davina McCall. <laughs> it goes on, it might help you to know that Divina is a classically trained presenter with a range of auto-cue skills suited to both game shows and corporate events. She can talk and move at the same time <laughs> and has featured in bra-showing roles in coffee table self-pleasuring men's magazines such as Onan and Genital Quarterly. <laughs> Alongside babes such as that one who was in that film that had a theatrical release and one of the blonde ones of Hollyoaks. Unless we receive a written undertaking from you not to repeat any doubts that you may have about our client's entitlement to extreme wealth, <laughs> we shall be forced to advise her to do a tearful interview about something to increase her likability. Blimey, these people mean business. By the way, what is a theatrical release? It's like a big tantrum. Oh. <laughs> Presenting is a funny sort of activity, best left to animals in nature films. So let's move on. <laughs> Work can be used as a form of punishment. Slave labour can be a tool of political oppression, as well as a way of keeping us in trainers. <laughs> People entering Nazi labour camps were met with the slogan, Arbeit macht frei, telling them that work would make them free. Certainly, a number of famous German companies have never had so many free workers since. Even today, there are plans to make refugees in British detention camps work for £2.72 a day. Enough to buy a book of stamps and still have enough change left over to use a phone box in the past. Staff won't be allowed to overwork prisoners, but will be allowed to work them over, especially if they complain about the wages. In fact, work is widely seen as an obligation. The right use work as a way of discriminating between the deserving and the undeserving, except when it comes to the rich, for whom the sheer burden of owning money is considered effort enough. <laughs> Conservatives never complain that Richard Branson is poncing about in a balloon when he should be in the office or running hysterically down the length of a train shouting, does anyone on board know anything about trains? 
Liberals see him as some kind of philanthropic employer in a classless society, because he doesn't wear a tie, let alone a wing collar. <laughs> Moreover, a lot is said about the need for people to work, but very little is said about the point of what they do. This is partly the legacy of the famous 20th century political economist John Maynard Keynes. For Keynesians, am I boring you? The point of work <laughs> was to pay wages which would boost demand, so it was better for a man to be paid to dig a hole and fill it in again than to be idle. But if a person's job doesn't increase the sum of human happiness, why not pay him to do nothing? Phil Collins, for example. <laughs> Shouldn't we treat him as the world's carol singer and just give him some money to go away? trouble is it would cost us too much to pay him off. Now you might say he earns his money because he's in demand, but economic success has less to do with what the public demand than what the public are relentlessly supplied with. The whole economy is geared not to what needs doing, but what needs selling. First we're sold high-calorie food, then the same people sell us low-calorie food. We're told about a hundred miracle diets and a thousand miracle products, but never told, just stop stuffing your face, you fat bastards. <laughs> And the law of demand and supply means that as the demand for jobs increases, so does the supply of heroin. <laughs> no one starts out in life thinking they want to be a junkie, eat utterly butterly or listen to Phil Collins. Capitalism wears them down. Oh, here we go. What's it say, Gordy? Uh, as finance ministers in the G8 group of leading industrial countries, may we say how appalled we are at your cheap jibes at Phil Collins. <laughs> We at the G8 are all big fan of Phil's, and in the words of TV inquisitive man Chris Tarrant, he's a really nice guy. His charity work takes the heat off us, and furthermore, many of the heads of developing countries welcome the spread of utterly bland, mind-numbing mediocrity across the globe, as it means they don't have to spend as much on water cannon. I suppose I shouldn't single out the work of Phil Collins. Much of what passes for highbrow entertainment is equally mediocre. <laughs> Just because you've met Melvin Bragg, it doesn't mean you're an artist. A true artist is someone who won't be popular until he's dead, like Geoffrey Archer. <laughs> Actually, the person who really annoys me is Michael Ignatieff. How do you get to be introduced as a thinker? What does he think the rest of us do? Just follow blind instinct. We don't think at all, we just fly south for the winter. <laughs> but as I say, the question of which jobs are worth doing is subjective. Because people on the left tend to talk of work as a right, whenever they question any human activity, they're accused of endangering jobs. If anyone casts doubts on the social usefulness of cluster bombs, instruments of torture or cruelty to animals, they are cast as employment-hating killjoys. I'm sure that orange marching bands could tell us that all kinds of related trades depend on them. Drum fitters, sash weavers and pipe bomb packers are all connected. <laughs> the point surely is that it isn't always best to defend an occupation. Although defending an occupation is the essence of orangeism, but that's not what I mean. <laughs> what I mean is, is that we need to reorganise our economy so that people can work doing things that are socially useful. Then no one would have to go door to door asking if you want your milk supplied by British gas. No one would have to reprocess nuclear waste and no one would have to work in a sunny delight factory. <laughs> Moreover, people who say the left are endangering jobs can fall very silent on the subject of unemployment. Under Thatcherism, British industry was abolished. The nation then became gripped by the idea that we were a sort of post-work society, as though there was nothing needing doing. It was said the working class no longer existed. The bins were secretly emptied by creatures of the night, vampire Oompa Loompas living underground. <laughs> and the rest of us could all just sell services to one another. 
but not useful services. The word consultant has ceased to mean an overpaid and slightly pissed surgeon who spends most of his time moonlighting in private hospitals <laughs> and has come to denote anybody who advises others. The middle class seems now to be made up mostly of people who can explain their job in great detail and leave one asking, so what do you actually do? Anyway, Caroline, uh, enough hobby talk. Tell me what you do when you're not whittling. Well, basically, I work for a PR consultancy advising personnel staff in the financial services sector on ways of empowering legal and accounting staff to learn the interpersonal skills of cascading information on presentation to those who provide investment advice to hoteliers in the conference sector on the best way of supplying hookers to foreign clients. <laughs> Since so many jobs in themselves do absolutely nothing to make the world a better place... Why should we resent people who live on welfare instead of by work? And why should we begrudge the small handouts given to them when we look at the billions given away to the private sector in partnership schemes? We give thousands of pounds to consultancy firms to say, hmm, tricky one. I know, give the contract to us. <laughs> Capitalists receive so many state benefits, the rest of us are entitled to demand that they be humiliated by DSS officers from time to time. Balfour Beatty should be made to attend restart interviews. <laughs> to think we actually give public money to these people to lay tracks for trains. A company that doesn't know paper over the cracks is just an expression. <laughs> we also bankroll exports, especially of arms, by giving export credit guarantees. And of course, arms are often made by big electronics firms, and big electronics firms also supply the government with computers that don't work. Computers are like markets and trains. Privately operated, they tend to crash. But all the main parties believe in throwing public money at these corporations. Let's listen to the commentary on this free government information video explaining the logic behind corporate welfare. Hello, I'm Ray Theon, Chief Executive of Marchant de F Electronic Systems. And I'm Hilary Packett, Junior Underling and Token Bint at the Department of Subsidy. No matter how business people try to help themselves, there will always be some who, through no fault of their own, will have to look to the government for help. And it's very easy to point the finger and say how much money government departments have spent on useless computers. But many computers are unable to work. <laughs> That's why hundreds of millions of pounds are paid out to electronics firms so that they can acquire the skills to get their products working. Or even better, put them in skips and replace them with new ones that don't work either. <laughs> And you know, in our country today, we produce far more weapons than we can possibly eat. If the government didn't subsidise exports, producers would either have to sell arms off cheaply to pensioners or invite peace protesters to humanely destroy them. Imagine the heartbreak of a British aerospace executive having to walk out onto the tarmac, look squarely at the jets he's raised from parts and then shoot them. Instead, those jets, thanks to government rescue plans, were released to fly free over the Timorese countryside, safe from predators and probably the UN. The arms trade, dropping cluster bombs, whatever the weather. Executive relief used to be a hand job in a motel. Now it's a fundraising drive to provide share options for the hard-pressed company director. And whereas the Tories used privatisation to vandalise essential services, the scary thing about New Labour is they actually seem to believe these people are good at running stuff. 
Workers know that with private schemes, their conditions will be undermined, the quality of service will suffer, and that they will get the blame for whatever goes wrong. Whenever there's a train crash, right-wing papers line up to blame the driver, as though somehow he's someone who wouldn't care about safety. The feckless working-class idler, sitting around all day, every day, right up the front end of the train. Why would he care whether it crashes or not? <laughs> but the public do seem to be moving leftward consistently on the matter of privatisation. I suspect that many rail passengers would prefer the old surly and drably clad guard of yesteryear to what is now called the customer operations leader. That's not a job, that's just three random words strung together. He might as well announce himself as the drummer Crisp Sandal. <laughs> we want someone who gives the impression that he might know something about trains, not a man who looks and sounds like a holiday rep. The creative use of mauve does nothing for our confidence in our short-term future. The negotiations between government and private companies wanting to run the underground were secret, but we've got hold of some replies John Prescott received from the companies approached. Yes, and uh, here are just a few. Thanks for a great lunch and thanks for thinking of us. You won't regret taking advantage of our expertise and proven record of efficiency in mass transportation. Now, remind me, those long holes the trains go in stop them falling over, don't they? Here's another. It says, Dear John, yes, our record of track maintenance is without parallel, but we're hoping to correct that using a ruler and a mallet. And this one says, Dear John, read your letter. When you say safe, how safe do you mean? Safe safe or inevitable risk safe? Only we've got this cheap braking system whereby the tracks break automatically as the train approaches. <laughs> of course, the railways, schools and hospitals do need money and private business has it. The question is how we get hold of it. We'd save an awful lot of bother if we just took it. After all, businessmen rely on the state to educate, nurse and transport the workforce. If companies want their staff delivered promptly and in one piece every morning, they should pay up. I'm not saying London Underground should threaten to act like a private rail company and start killing the punters. I just mean that the private sector needs the public sector more than the other way around. In all the public services, there's a mania for contracting out. The BBC used to have makeup and wardrobe artists and caterers and drivers. Security would recognise Jim Davidson and stop him entering the building. <laughs> And contracting out happens in health and transport, when every made guy knows that when there's a contract out, someone's going to get killed. Jeremy, I've just been handed this circular from the new head of internal marketing at the BBC. Ooh. It says, Dear presenter, just thought I'd cascade this to introduce myself. As you may know, I have been working in BBC schools as head of development, converting schools' programmes into programmes about luxury flats. Before that, I was head of news manipulation at the Home Office. Suffice it to say, broadcasting is my life. Anyhow, does anyone know anything about radio? I can't find it on my telly unless I check into a hotel. Normal tellies don't seem to have it, and on hotel tellies you can't see it, so that's not much good either. <laughs> Who makes radio anyway? Is it us? I can't seem to find a budget for it. Anyway, do come up to the 22nd floor for drinks. There's a water cooler by the lift, so have your cash the swipe card and a beaker ready. Big kiss, Marvin Gaye. And no jokes about the name, please. I'm happily married, exclamation mark. That's not his real name, is it? Yeah, yeah. Lots of top people think it's OK to share the names with Motown legends. Like that Kosovo war bloke, General Sir Martha Rees and the Vandellas. <laughs> anyway, good night, listeners. And heads down, you've got work in the morning. Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation was written and presented by Jeremy Hardy and also starred Gordon Kennedy and Debbie Isaac. 
The producer was David Tyler, and the programme was a positive production for the BBC, who can't be arsed to make enough programmes of their own. <laughs>